Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room Podcast. We're back with the second installment in our two-part selection box series containing some of the highlights from the year gone by. So before we jump into this episode, a huge thank you for listening again this year and hearing some of the fantastic insights and advice we were lucky enough to get from amazing guests yet again this year. But back to now, our selection box last week was packed with clips discussing the ever-changing role of HR and how HR professionals are continuing to adapt to the needs of employees and organizations. This week, though, we're filling this episode with clips discussing some things that have also changed and increased this year, the HR tricky topics and employment law challenges that HR professionals have had to face. First up, we spoke to Judith Curran, Counsel in Employment Law and Benefits at Mason Hayes & Curran, who outlined some of the key employment law challenges from 2023 and what to look out for in 2024. You know, employment law is um, a really fast-changing area of, of the law, really. It's constantly shifting, constantly moving and, you know, 2023 was no exception to that. Um, and we've seen an awful lot of development over the course of this year. Lots of new things being implemented this year, but really which will have effect for 2024 as well. So it's really looking at, you know, what, what the pressing needs might be. Well, I suppose one of the key points that um, key talking points for this last year have been the Work and Life Balance Act, really. And, and, you know, there were a lot of things that came into force with that, you know, the, the paid domestic violence um, leave the care and medical care leave but one of the the main sort of talking points as well was around the right to request remote working the remote and flexible working changes which are coming in so you know we were chatting earlier you know a lot of people might feel or a lot of companies might feel that you know kind of on top of this already you know we're a couple of years post pandemic post lockdown where you know lots of businesses were obviously had the remote working, the hybrid working, and some organizations never really came back from that. So a lot of employers might feel, oh, you know, we're quite comfortable with this, but a very happy remote working sort of uh, a workforce. But even if you have as an, as an employer or an, or an organization got the, you know, you're fairly comfortable with it and it's now being formalized in terms of the right to request remote working and, you know, the flexible working rights coming coming in as well and whilst the law has been enacted you know we're still waiting for the sort of go date on on when these rights will come in and it's important to remember that you know it's not a right to work flexibly or a right to work remotely it's just the right to request it so even if you have the existing pattern in place which many organizations do it'll still be really useful you know if it's on your sort of to-do list and you're thinking oh I really must get around to the policy this is a good time really to now maybe bring that to the top of your to-do list as it were if you're someone listening in and you thought, yeah, I'm aware of that's coming in because the rights are being formalized into the law. Um, there is, uh, you know, there'll be a, a, a code of practice. Um, there's a new right for an employee to bring a complaint to the WRC, for example, for I've made a, a, a request and my employer isn't dealing with it properly or they're not complying with what's in the code. So, 
just being really alive to that. In our next clip, our very own Mary Cullen, founder and managing director here at NZHR, spoke to us about how employers can keep on top of all these challenges, where to find the information and where to get the support they need. It's the bread and butter of a lot of the work that we do with our clients is ensure that they're up to date and compliant with employment legislation. And we do that, I suppose, for our clients in in that we update their documents for them. Um, But we also do it for the HR community generally through our podcasts, through our webinars to keep people up to date because we recognise that there's a huge vacuum out there. This legislation is in place, but who's talking about it? I don't hear anyone talking about it. I I had a quick um, check on my uh, podcast. I'm a big podcast fan, not just a a podcast recorder, but, um, you know, there's nobody talking about it. So how are employers meant to know what they're to do, how they're to do it, what consideration should they be taking into, um, I, I suppose, or building into their their thought processes here um because it's not as simple as you know we we're going to introduce domestic uh violence leave uh we have to think about well what if somebody approaches one of our managers what if that goes wrong uh what could go wrong and how might we provide for that in our policies and procedures training, education, awareness. Uh, These are all important things to factor into um, what we do as HR professionals. Um, We spend our time poring over these documents, but I know when I was in-house, I didn't have the time to do that. I was always, you know, under pressure to deliver on the projects I was delivering on at that time. Never mind pour over every piece of legislation that came out. And and the volume has uh, gathered pace considerably uh, since I was actually working Mm -hmm. in-house. As we progress through the year, we also got many requests from our audience to explore some more specific topics that many are finding tricky. One topic which featured heavily in the headlines in the final quarter of last year was social media and work and how they are interlinked. We were lucky to speak to one of Ireland's leading employment lawyers and experts on this, Barry Crushell, who outlined some key considerations for employers to note when it comes to this topic. Um, I recently gave a lecture on social media to the Law Society of Ireland for their their, their, their online learning course. And, and I concluded that lecture noting um, a, a quote from, um, from an American lawyer who said, you know, if you're an employee and you're driving, you're about to tweet or put something up on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook, just imagine what you have posted being on a billboard the following day that your boss is going to drive past on their way to work. And that's probably a good rule of thumb. But at the same time, I, I, I think because of the more public nature of most people's pronouncements, it has the impact to it has the, the effect of potentially impacting us in ways that it, it wouldn't for a previous generation. If 20 years ago we didn't have access to you know, X, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, you might have made comments in private to individuals and it would go no further. But now those same comments, if posted on social media, particularly as you said, Owen, on a public account, have the possibility of seeping into the workplace environment or a consideration for your employer, particularly if your account is linked in some way to your employer. So for example, if you are the chief marketing officer 
of a company and you're the face and the spokesperson of that company and that's on your social media policies, there would be an expectation that you would behave in a particular way, uh, cognizant of your responsibilities to the employer. But to go back to the, the, the point that you've really made in relation to the criminal justice um, incitement to violence or hatred and, 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 and hate offences bill, I believe it's just passed through the Shannon. Um, and so it, it does look like it will be enacted. And I think this is going to be a very, very tricky piece of legislation for everybody to get to grips with. If I was to go back to the Irene uh, Glynn and the Carlo Dental Clinic case, they had said that what their employee had, uh, uh, the comments that their employee had made amounted to hate speech, despite that definition not having been provided yet. And I suppose in anticipation of today's um, podcast, I, I, I did look at uh, the bill and where it currently stood. And there is an explanatory memorandum there, and it's to repeal the prohibition of incitement to hatred act. 1989 in its entirety and replace it with a new simpler provision for incitement to hatred. And it creates new provisions for hate crime based on an aggreg aggregated offenses model. So effectively what they're saying is, is particular comments um, around people's characteristics uh, might be aggregating factors that can be taken into consideration, you know, by the authorities when an offense has been committed. But hatred isn't very well defined. Hatred is, means hatred against a person or group of persons in the state or elsewhere on account of their protected characteristics or any one of those characteristics. And those characteristics are typically speaking the same characteristics that we would have under the Employment Equality Act. Uh, they would be, you know, race, gender, nationality, um, uh, and effectively, if comments are made that have evidence of a hate motivation, you know, that would be considered potentially an offence. What's also very important is, and it was hidden in the text, is that it mentioned that the condoning, denying, or trivializing of a, a genocide, war crimes, or any crimes against humanity could also constitute a hate crime. So the question that I have is who gets to decide? Because again, we've referred to a particular case where an individual was dismissed on account of their position on what is going on in the Middle East. But does the employer or the employee get to decide as to what is trivializing, what is condoning, what is grossly offensive? So it's going to be a very, very tricky area for employers to manage what constitutes and what doesn't constitute hate speech. You know, does behavior that otherwise might have been uh, might have amounted to a dismissal on the grounds of bullying and harassment now come under consideration because of, you know, the, the comments now being construed as hate speech. I think that's going to be very, uh, you know, it, it's going to be a very difficult one for, uh, for employers to manage. But as Mary had said earlier on, the most important part is, is that before any decision is made, both sides are heard and that the employee in question is given an opportunity to respond, present their version of events, you know, articulate their points so that when a decision is ultimately made, it can be made with the benefit of all of the information uh, to hand by an independent uh, individual who hasn't hopefully participated in the investigation and also potentially affording that employee a right of appeal. So it goes back to the bread and butter sequence of events that we would ordinarily expect for nearly any sanction, including dismissal. Independent investigation, 
you know, um, a, a, an independent disciplinary process and an independent appeals process. And generally, if an employer puts those three procedures in place, even when it comes to um, sanctions for social media use, they will be in a much safer position than they would be rather than taking a knee-jerk reaction and reacting um, impulsively. Another heavily requested topic that many employers are finding it hard to handle as they balance their duty of care with providing a safe uh, workplace for all employees is the whole area of drugs, alcohol and addiction in the workplace. For this, we were lucky to speak to another one of Ireland's leading employment law experts, Jennifer Cashman, who outlined what employers should look out for and how they should manage it. You know, a, a positive um, drug test or a, an acknowledgement from an employee, an admission from an employee that they, they are under the influence or were under the influence, that's not enough to just then decide, right, you're fired by. Um, you know, there still has to be the natural justice fair procedures. There's still You still have to follow your own in, internal procedures and the general principles of fair procedures. So there'd still have to be an investigation, potentially. Um, uh, now, an investigation, if there's an admission, an investigation won't always be required, depending on what the policy says. Though a lot of disciplinary policies provide for an investigation um, and uh, sort of as a mandatory step where, where the outcome could be gross misconduct. So you may have to do an investigation regardless of an admission. It will be a short investigation, but nonetheless, there, it may be required. So you need, really need to check your, your policies and procedures very, very carefully um, to see what exactly is required uh, under your policy. I've seen plenty of policies um, where employers are of the view that there's no investigation required, but in fact, there is, according to the wording of the policy, in certain circumstances. So really important to check your policy procedures, but you'll be looking at investigation, disciplinary process, appeal process. So it'll be very important because, you know, you may have very good grounds for dismissing somebody, but it's not just the grounds for dismissal. It's also the process you use to affect the dismissal. Both are looked at in terms of the employer's response to the situation. Um, and you can fall down in your defence of an unfair dismissal claim for um, for failing to uh, for failing to follow a fair process just as easily as you could fall down for not having good grounds for, for firing the person in the first place. Um, leading on then to an equality claim and, and uh, a disability discrimination claim, I suppose there should be no employer or HR professional dealing with any type of scenario that involves disability discrimination without the involvement of medical professionals and occupational medical professionals um, for the employer uh, where you're sending the person off. So, I mean, if, you know, if you're disciplining somebody and they raise a disability as a mitigating factor or as a defence to what's happened, then that is that is uh, cause to pause and, and uh, send the individual for occupational medical review um, and the purpose of that occupation and medical review is to see firstly, you know, arising out of what they've told you, are they fit to do their job at all? Um, and if they're not fit, are there some reasonable accommodations that the employer could make in order to um, make them fit to do the job as the legislation requires? Um, and sometimes, as Mary rightly says, there'll be treatment programs involved. So the occupational medical profession will come back and say, look, they could undertake this treatment program. If they undertook this treatment program, then I would recommend seeing them after this treatment program to see if we can facilitate a return to work. And that's something the employer then will have to give serious consideration to from a legal perspective. Um, and then the person is effectively on sick leave for a period of time um, um, and will be treated in accordance with the employer's usual um, policies and procedures in that regard. Um, so, so it is really important to remember that you know, an admission or a test result isn't the end of the story. Uh, it could be the start of the story in, in some instances, um, but, but it does require an employer to, to, to pause and then think about, okay, what do I do next here now? I, I have 
either an admission or a positive test result, is that enough for me to take action um, from a disciplinary perspective? Do I need to instigate an investigation um, and then a disciplinary and then an appeal? And is there anything that, that requires the intervention here of an occupational medical professional? So that there's a number of steps after the test. Uh, that need to be taken into account. In our next clip, we spoke to our very own Joe Thompson, HR consultant at Inside HR, about a topic he hears many clients and professionals needing support on, the whole area of long-term absence. Long-term absence is something that nobody wants to face. Firstly, of course, the employee who is going through either a physical or mental challenge and is being forced to be sidelined from work. And secondly, the employer who is caught between caring for their colleagues, but is also trying to run a business at full strength. So what can HR teams and employers do to manage this? Let's listen to what Joe had to say. Yeah, I feel like it needs to form part of a wider policy, so like a sick leave policy where you can talk about <clears throat> the pay, you can talk about the differences between long-term illness uh, and short-term illness or intermittent absences as well. I mean, there's no legal definition as such for what constitutes long-term absence, but as Liam said, most businesses will consider it to be a period of four weeks or more outside of the workplace. And some businesses will state in documentation like their handbook what periods of time away from work they would consider to be long-term. But like all matters when it comes to managing absence, you need to make decisions kind of based on a case-by-case basis. There's, there's so many variable scenarios and situations you need to take into consideration. And obviously, it's a bit of a minefield for HR professionals because no case is the same. Um, and like while there isn't a legal definition for what long-term absence is, we still do need to consider legislation that touches on it, which is what's taken into consideration when we draw up policies. So, you know, that being said, the Equality Act needs to be kept in mind. An employee cannot be discriminated against by their employer because of an illness, as that could that illness could be considered disability, which is obviously one of the nine protected characteristics. So Unlike the fact that there's no legal definition for long-term sickness, um, in Ireland, our definition of what is considered to be disability is one of the widest ranging in any legal system. If an employee feels they're being treated differently or less favorably because of an illness, an employer could be facing a difficult equality claim against them. Other legislation that we consider and take into consideration when we're drawing up policies on, on sick leave is the Workplace Relations Act, which stipulated that you know, those who are on sick leave, as long as it's certified sick leave, will accrue annual leave for the duration of their absence. And um, we have seen, you know, in the last few years, there are people that stay on sick leave a little bit longer, partly because of this, because there are more social protections in place. But any policy that we have needs to be about being proactive about the absences. And I think if you have your policy in place alongside a sick pay policy, and have a clear idea of how you're going to deal with each situation, be that long-term sickness or short-term sickness, I think it's important for managers to have at their disposal. And as it's January, and many of you would be thinking about checking in with your team and coordinating performance management for this year, in our final clip, we spoke to Alex Hogarty, now Global Head of Wellbeing at Novartis and formerly Global Program Lead of Performance Management for Novartis when I spoke to him. He discussed how we can talk, I suppose, think about things a little bit differently to achieve even better results across the board. In this clip, I asked Alex, how did the team at Novartis measure impact, a key aspect of managing performance? This was a really important piece uh, of the change as well, because 
a lot of our objectives or even assessments that were made were really around maybe activity metrics. So you've created X projects or you've had X meetings or training events, et cetera. And that was kind of maybe the common piece. What we really needed to, to center us on is what is the impact and the outcome for others, whether that's for another team in the organization, maybe it's ultimately for our patients and society. So really getting people to think about when they're creating their big, bold and near-term objectives, what, are, what would be that out, output? What would be the impact there? And how will they measure that? That might be through sentiment. It may be through um, sales figures. It may be other, other areas. And that when you look at your near-term objectives, they're really your, how are you going to move on that journey towards your big, bold objective? And that might be a combination of activity metrics, but also you want an outcome of those as well. So you're not just ticking a box to say, we've done X project. You're actually asking that team what was the feedback for that? What went well? What could we have done better? Um, so you really understand that and you're feeding that in then to your next step as you head towards your big goal objective. Definitely, 100%. So, so just a, what, are the, what are the other things on that as well is previously when we, we looked at impact, we really focused on kind of activity metrics coming out of objectives. We obviously had around your values and behaviors. We brought in a third component, which is how do you contribute to the success of others? So how are you focusing not just on your individual performance, but really powering the team's performance or powering other individuals? And that could be through mentoring and development, or it could be through more collaborative programs or projects across teams as well. So, so really trying to move from just a, an individual piece really into that kind of team. So there you are. Just some of the highlights from this year's HR Room podcast, the podcast which has now over 150 episodes for you to listen to for free anytime, anywhere. So a huge thank you to everyone again for listening. We'll catch you next week for the next installment of the HR Room podcast. So don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels. If you are enjoying these episodes, do please feel free to share them with colleagues, friends, and family. And even better, if you can leave us a review on whatever platform you're on, we'd really appreciate it too. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at InsideHR.ie. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room podcast the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember... If you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.